0: Hello, I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today, we will be revisiting the Stargate program. Stargate is one of the many acronyms that was used by the government as a reference to a 20-year effort through the various military, industrial, and military intelligence organizations, devoted to looking at the application of clairvoyance, or what has come to be known as remote viewing, for purposes of intelligence gathering and espionage. My guest, Dr. Edwin C. May, was the scientific director of this program during its final decade of existence. He is co-author of several books, including ESP Wars, East and West, and an anthology that he co-edited called Anomalous Cognition, Scientific Papers About Remote Viewing. And, most recently, he is the co-author of the first two volumes of the Stargate Archives. These are uh, carefully edited government documents that were formally classified about this then secret program. The interview uh, is conducted on Skype, and so I'm going to switch over now to the Skype channel. Welcome, Ed. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you again. It's been, I think, a couple of years since uh, we've been in the studio together, and this is an opportunity for us to revisit the whole multi-year and uh, involvement that you have had with the program that is now known as Stargate but I I gather it actually had many different names over uh, the course of its lifetime
1: yeah that's true Jeffrey and thanks for the invitation I really enjoyed the sessions we did before when you were in Las Vegas too bad you didn't invite me all the way to Albuquerque one of my favorite places to be
0: well, no, you're welcome here anytime, and and I would love to have you back in the studio live with me, but until then, I'm glad we can communicate via Skype.
1: I do have one comment. It's sort of an amusing comment about the various special names other than Stargate. Mm-hmm. One of them was called Quantum Leap. I walked out of the Pentagon with a Marine, uh, Army Colonel who said, Ed, I've got good news. The new nickname for your program is called Quantum Leap. And I said, Oh, gee, do we have to? What's wrong? <laughs> I said, a Quantum Leap progress is the smallest possible progress above none. Can we change it? And we did. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, but in a way many many people would like to think that extrasensory perception remote viewing is is just a tiny insignificant thing if it exists at all
1: well many people think that and if one goes on and looks at youtube and reads a lot of popular books i myself would come away with that same feeling. If you look at the actual data, something's different. Can I run uh, an evidential question for you? Sure. All right. Suppose you decide to open up a brand new restaurant in Albuquerque. It's small, but it's beautiful. It only holds 19 people. On an opening night, 19 people show up. And for the next three weeks, 17 of those original 19 people are coming back for more at the same restaurant. What would you say about the quality of your restaurant? I, I
0: would say yeah, it must be high because people keep coming back.
1: Great statement. How much do I owe you for that <laughs> statement? <laughs> uh, however, okay, hold that thought. Over the years, uh, from nineteen uh, gosh um, seventy three to ninety five, the various military agencies and intelligence agencies tasked gave a mission for the people at sri and later at fort meade maryland where the psychic spying unit used to be they tasked us with 504 separate missions and those were spread out over 19 different federal agencies the army the navy secret service defense intelligence agency cia and so on okay
2: mm-hmm.
1: of those 19 agencies. 17 of them came back with additional uh, missions, including the CIA. They came back 43 times. Mm -hmm. And the all-time winner is something called the Joint Task Force, which is based out of Alameda here in California. One of their uh, jobs is drug interdiction. Mm. They came back 172 times. So don't tell me ESP is small and it doesn't exist and it's not useful.
0: Well, when did you first join the program?
1: Uh, late in nineteen seventy-five, as a very small part-time consultant, and I stayed that way until seventy-nine, where I became a senior research physicist on the staff.
0: Mm-hmm. And then, if I recall, it was about nineteen eighty-five when you became the research director.
1: That's true for the next ten, uh, ten years.
0: Mm-hmm. So your involvement has been as as a researcher. Uh, not as a percipient, particularly, or uh, as, as a military intelligence guy.
1: No. Uh, in fact, it's interesting to note, uh, the in these volumes for the Stargate archives, which I'm sure we'll talk more about... Um, the introductions are extensive describing how how everything began and who started what those have been vetted by both my colleagues put off and targ and they thought they that it is an accurate uh, representation what went on mm-hmm. and what i found interesting is that uh our approach was different than most other laboratories and we had we had a great advantage that is a lot of money at least when mm-hmm. compared to other research laboratories because under my watch if I didn't know how to make psychophysiology measurements I'd hire somebody who mm. was the best in the country for that sort of thing mm-hmm. and that gave us a slight edge
0: as I recall the program brought in uh, roughly a million dollars a year for 20 years
1: Yeah, that sounds better than it actually was because it was lots of. uh, I had a program for two million dollars a year for five years, and there were lots of program, lots of years where we had, you know, the management was measuring the drapes to see who was going to take the next (laughs) position (laughs) because it was was huge variance Mm -hmm. in the money.
0: And I suppose one of the reasons that there were many different names and labels is because money came from different government agencies at different times.
1: Well, I'll ask a question. How much money percent-wise do you think the CIA gave us?
0: A percentage of the money you received? The total. Um, I would say, well, you know, based on popular accounts, it's probably over 50%, but in actuality, I'm going to say 10%. It's
1: actually 1%. Uh Uh-huh they gave us $195,000 gave put off and target 195,000 and you know that's 1% of 20 million
2: mhm o-
0: okay so uh, obviously there were other government ed- agencies uh, also involved how many different government agencies relied on your services
1: 19
0: 19 different agencies so you were like a uh, um well, wait, before I say you, because you operated initially out of SRI International, a big, um, we think of it as a military industrial think tank. Exactly. F- and at one, some point you left SRI International and switched over to a company, a, a private enterprise known as SAIC.
1: Correct. But uh, keep in mind, uh, SRI International also is a private nonprofit organization. But
0: SAIC, I think, was a for-profit, is it not?
1: Uh, no, and it turned that way, but when I was there, it was nonprofit profit also.
0: Nice. And that stands for Science Applications International Corporation. Or-
1: That's correct. <laughs> it's very much SRI-like, and both are defense contractors. However, SRI and SAIC both have lots of other jobs besides defense.
0: Mm -hmm. But they were highly respected as places where people could come for leading-edge sorts of research. Still do, actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, let let's talk about how, uh, your initial involvement with the program. As I recall, you you explained to me at one time when we were together a few years ago that uh, Ingo Swan brought you in.
1: That he did. Um, I, as you know, Jeff, I spent a fair amount of time in India over the years, and I was, after I was there for an entire year. I wrote Chuck Onerton a letter. Uh, he was the uh, well-known psych- parapsychologist in in New York at that time, and said, "Hey, mm-hmm. uh, I'd like to come. I'm being in India. I'm about ready to go home." Wrote him this ten-page letter before email, mm-hmm. and said, "Would you? Let, how about if I do this, this, this?" He wrote me back a one-word letter. And that answer was yes.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so I showed up in New York and work, started working for eight months at Maimonides Medical Center, and in that process, I did meet Ingo. And we actually published some PK random number generator experiments that I did with Ingo there. And while Ingo couldn't tell me exactly what was going on, he said, uh, "Gee, um, how would you like to come and uh, work at SRI?" And I said, "What's SRI? I've never heard of SRI." Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he said, uh, "Let me see what I can do." But
0: Ingo yeah. at that point was already well established uh, with yes. the you put off and target SRI.
1: That's correct. And I think, you know, Ingo had a word this nicely. I wrote the, an obituary for him when Ingo passed away. And, uh, he told me once while we were sitting at, uh, dinner, he said, Ed, you don't want to be my friend. I said, why not, Ingo? He says, I could be a bitch on wheels. <laughs> and in the obituary, I said, that was an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he, I'm, you know, probably I don't know if Hal would agree with this. I think he browbeat Hal into hiring me because Hal didn't know me either. Yeah. and the what I brought to the table and what Ingo wanted me there for, uh, Hal is a brilliant engineer, uh, an electrical engineer, and much more capable in theory than I am. Mm-hmm. And Russ is uh, a physicist, but not and a laser physicist, quite accomplished in both. But my area of expertise was hard-nosed nuclear physics research, um, uh, experimental work. Mm-hmm. So they were doing a magnetometer experiment at that time and some other technical details. And this is almost an exact quote of Ingo. It said, Ed, I don't want somebody to, to devalue my PK because somebody flipped a light switch down the hall. Mm-hmm. And that was my job. And unfortunately, uh, within the first month, I completely killed the magnetometer experiment. I went out and bought a, a dime store bar magnet about this big around about that long, and I walked up and up and down in front of the hall, mm-hmm. in, in the hall outside the, the lab where the magnetometer was, and just flipped the magnet like this. It drove the instrument crazy.
0: Now the magnetometer, as I recall, was supposed to be shielded from that sort of thing.
1: It was supposed to be, yeah.
0: Uh huh. But <clears throat> you, so you discovered that it was not that the. It, it, totally not. My goodness, and it was probably a very expensive magnetometer.
1: Uh, it may have been borrowed, I don't know. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> yes. Okay, so, because this is a well-known experiment with Ingo Swan that he was able to perturb a magnetometer that I thought was buried underground and shielded oh, yeah. and
1: that's a different magnetometer. That oh. one was over at Stanford, and was very well protected, uh-huh. but this was a Navy-funded um, uh, other magnetometer that was in the third floor of the building at SRI.
0: Okay, well, I'm glad. That, I'm glad that got clarified. Right. <laughs> well, let me ask you another question though uh, about your relationship with Ingo. But you and Ingo were both Scientologists, as I recall.
1: Um, not initially. Um, mm-hmm. When I. Before I joined SRI, Ingo said, well, you know, I, everything I learned about how to be psychic, I learned in Scientology. Mm-hmm. And I had never heard of Scientology. So I said to myself, hey, if I'm going to get serious about this, I better look into it. Yeah. And uh, <clears throat> he uh, introduced me to the Church of Scientology in L.A., and for a bunch of years, uh, I found it was part of the human potential movement of that era.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I found it extremely useful. And then I discovered they were bull goose loony and nuts. Quit. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well,
0: for what it's worth, uh, Hal Putoff was also uh, a Scientologist. And Pat Price, who worked yes. in the program in early years, was a Scientologist. So I, I suppose Russell was not.
1: Russell was not.
0: I, I think it's fair to say that there's, you know, something about Scientology that, uh, uh, it, it, minimally speaking, one could say people who go through Scientology are open-minded about the possibilities of remote viewing.
1: When you apply for security clearances, the FBI does background investigations and all that. Yeah. I had applied for a particular clearance and normally took, uh, oh, eight, nine months to get it, 18 months had passed, and I did not know what the hell was going on, and I eventually found out what happened. It turned out Pat Price, and I think this may be in Russell Targ's uh, film, um, Pat Price when he worked directly for the CIA, was handing classified documents to the Church of Scientology. Mm -hmm. And in 1979 when the FBI raided the appropriate place in LA and found all these documents it caused enormous problems as you can well imagine so then now that the uh, FBI guys are are interviewing me and they said well what about your Church of Scientology we want to know and I always like to push back with these characters I said wait a minute the International uh, Organization for Religion (laughs) Values the Church of Scientology is equal religion to everybody else's. So, are you questioning my First Amendment rights to practice my religion unfettered while yeah. these two FBI goons do a full, full bore backpedal?
2: <laughs> and I
1: said, "Okay, now that uh, we've cleared that up, I waive those rights. What do you want to know?"
0: <laughs> well, obviously, the uh, government had a real interest in Scientology at that time. That's why they were raided. I think
1: their <clears throat> interest was financial
2: yeah, tax evasion. People
1: were, I mean, such. to do things at the Church of Scientology was frightfully expensive. Yeah, And everybody was writing those off as a donation to a church. And that grumped the, that grumped the Internal Revenue Service. That sure. was the main Rosen Debt report.
0: I I see. Oh, okay. Well, uh, at some point, I guess around 1985, uh, Hal put off left, and, and you became. The research director, Russell Tark, had left several years, even before that. Eighty-two. Mm-hmm. So you were the whole program sort of fell into your lap, and as I recall, rather suddenly and unexpectedly.
1: Yeah, and uh, I managed with uh, put-off start of the game, but I put the close a deal with a ten million dollar five-year pro- uh, contract with the Army Medical Research and Development Command. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that, the commander was a two-star general, Garrison Ratman. And unlike any other funding our program had over the years, he didn't get his money given to him through Congress to give to us. Instead, he had a certain budget that the Congress said, here, the medical command needs this amount of money. He took some of that money Mm -hmm. away from his own programs to give us a $10 million contract.
0: And which, was, I, obviously, the largest single contract at the time.
1: Well, if if it had all been realized, yes. Uh, mm. Over the years, the largest supporter over overall was Defense Intelligence Agency. Mm. Uh, the um, Med Command gave us realized six million dollars
0: uh, out of the initial ten that had been uh, implied by the contract. Right. I I see. Well, let's talk about this question when you took over the program or the research yes. aspects of the program at that point the applied aspects uh, military intelligence uh, tasking was mostly done i believe through uh, the program at fort meade in maryland
1: Uh, That was true after about 1979 onwards. Mm -hmm. We still did some, and we actually did some even after 1985, Mm -hmm. but the vast majority was shifted over to the in-house program at Fort Meade. But that, see, they didn't start until basically late 78, 79 time frame. Mm
0: -hmm. Which is already six years before you became the research director. Exactly. Uh, What what were the changes that you made uh, when you Took over the program?
1: Good question, Jeff. Um, I think the primary thing was we had such, we were so well funded, and we, for the first time I think ever, we had a basic research charter. Mm -hmm. We've always been able to do research, but it was oriented for two ways. One, if uh, the intelligence community had found that something interesting was going on in PSI in Russia or China or somewhere else, they had to. They asked us to determine, if that were true, is it a threat to the U.S.? Mm-hmm. We called that threat assessment. Mm-hmm. And so we could do a little bit of research to see whether this thing worked or it didn't, and so on. Um, but most of the research was, in that era, was to find out how to make protocols better, how to analyze the data, how to get some prediction going, so when I say that, that uh, the Russians are going to attack Beijing or something like that, I could give some, from a remote viewing point of view, give some evidence for that and why mm-hmm. I believe the evidence. Mm-hmm. We didn't do a good job of that, actually. Mm-hmm. But that's what we call application-oriented research. And part of that was to do countermeasures and things of that nature. The big change was in '85 was a research charter, charter to figure out how the world does ESP work.
2: Mm-hmm
0: and uh that was your focus and as i recall I, I from previous conversations we've had one of one of your big interests was establishing a, a high level committee of scientists who would be looking over your shoulder uh evaluating your methodologies and providing feedback
1: yes uh <clears throat> the medical command um first of all we had two Actually, three committees. One mm-hmm. was called an IRB, which means Human Use Committee. Mm-hmm. And we had to formulate our own. Um, and those people are there to protect the human use aspects when we're mm-hmm. doing uh, remote viewing experiments or things like that. Is it a danger or risk to them?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the most important committee is what we call the Scientific Oversight Committee. And the initial one had 12 members of the who's who in US science from uh, every discipline you can think of philosophy and physics and uh, um, psychology and so on. Some of those people were well known, like uh, um, Phil Zimbardo was on our, our mm. oversight committee, he's a well known psychologist. Yes. Um, we had, uh, uh, and all those people are named in the in the Stargate volumes.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, Stephen Hilliard, who's a very well-known neuroscientist, is still, I think he's professor emeritus now. These people were the entrance requirement that they had to be skeptical,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and they, but they had to be open-minded skeptical.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, it was not a, a dash in, do something, and leave. They were with us for five years.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And their job was threefold. Number one, to review our protocols, uh, and approve them before we actually did any studies at all. Mm-hmm. Now we're pretty good at that. So the round robin, we'd send it to them. They'd criticize and send it back. That was very rapid. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they were t- allowed to do and actually never did do it. And that is exercise drop in privileges where there was no, uh, with no warning to mm-hmm. watch. They never did that. But the most important part was uh, the review of all of our final reports. They had to review them as if they were submissions to their favorite technical journal and write it up. And in volume two, all of their comments are in our volume two. Now, the good news is we're good at what we do. We we argued with them. They'd come to SRI for a two-day meeting, and we'd win 85% of the uh, arguments we get into. I mean, really roll up our sleeves and get at it. Mm-hmm. The better news was the 15% we lost Mm -hmm. because we we learned to do it much better than we would have otherwise done. Mm -hmm. And from my academic aspect career, that was the highlight of my career dealing with those people. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, I would say all of them, without exception, said that we did the best possible science one could do. But about only 50% of them uh, were, in fact, um, uh, convinced that there was something worth looking at.
0: Oh, so in other words, 50% of these same people thought that you had nothing at all, in spite of the fact that the uh, government agencies kept coming back for more.
1: But they didn't know that. They were only looking Mm -hmm. at the the research side. Uh One sort of personal story there, uh, a close friend of mine, um, we'd been friends for years, a fellow physicist, a high energy guy, um, won the Nobel Prize. Uh, with Leon Letterman to uh, uh co-discovery of the mu- muon neutrino. Long-time friend. His name is Mel Schwartz. Mm-hmm. And so I invited him down for dinner when we- he found the prize and we had a nice dinner and said, Hey Mel, how would you like to be on our scientific oversight committee? He says, You know, I think what you're doing is all BS. So why do you want me? And I said, Well, you know, really uh, Mel, your Nobel Prize looks good on the masthead. <laughs> 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 and he said... Well, about, I said, the real reason I want you there is because you're an honest scientist and I respect the way you think. Mm -hmm. He says, what if I'm watching you for a year and I still think it's all silly? And I said, if you can convince the other members of the committee of that, then I'll quit what I'm doing right now and come to work for you at Brookhaven National Laboratory. He says, done. I said, not even close to done. Mel gets not even close. What if, after watching us for a year, And talking with other members of the committee, you are convinced something's worthy of study. Mm -hmm. And he said, he thought about it. He says, if that's true, I'll help you try to figure out how it works for some fraction of the rest of my career. Mm -hmm. And he did just that.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, that's impressive.
1: Very impressive.
0: Uh, But I'm not aware of any publications that have his name on them.
1: Nope. Everything was all classified then. His name's all over the review stuff in, in volume two. You'll see him there.
0: Okay. Well, I, I guess I have to. <laughs> the price is, is pretty high. I have to warn our viewers. It's like $95 at this point for a brand new copy. So they're likely to be found primarily in libraries. It's not, yeah. uh, these volumes aren't really intended, I suppose, for the average general reader because most people won't shell out $95 for a book.
1: Uh, And I think probably the most exciting book that might even be worth the $95 is Volume 4. Volume 4 is coming out. It is a series of uh, the U.S. government talked a lot among themselves at very high levels about our program. You know, our program had not much money at all in terms of government funding. But, boy, did it have attention all the way to the White House, the vice president's office, agency directors and so on. And all of them are briefed, and what we're able to show in volume four, who was briefed by whom, and what they talked about, and whether they supported. That includes senators and all this stuff. All that, and all that, uh, is in there from 73 all the way down to 95. And what we have is a, a synopsis that is about a 35,000 word synopsis, Says so you just read the narrative of what happened over mm-hmm. those years, and it points to where the supporting documents are in the paper that itself is really worth the read.
0: And when will that uh, volume four be released?
1: Good question. Uh, all the ma- manuscripts have been with the with McFarlane uh, publishers for over years now. Uh, like uh, The next one's going to be released is on PK. That was our first one two years ago. <laughs> I see. So, who knows?
0: So, maybe sometime in 2019.
1: I think it's likely it'll be then, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: okay. So, we've had previous discussions about some of your findings and in, in particular your interest in entropy, your interest in precognition Uh now it's been two years since we've really discussed those things and looking back on the program at, at this point uh ha- have your theoretical ideas changed in any way since we last spoke
1: Uh yes they've hardened uh huh uh, it's pretty clear, um, my colleague Sonali, who's going to be on your show, I think, yes. um, we've co-authored papers where she's been the primary author, giving fairly com- compelling, at least I find them so, arguments of why there should, there's only one form of informational psi. I mean, telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, other forms of psi like that. And we can collapse them all down into just precognition. Mm-hmm. That may not be true, but in, one thing that's interesting about it is, is it reduces a whole lot of impossible problems only down to one mm. impossible problem.
0: And it's a hypothesis worth exploring.
1: Absolutely. I yeah. completely agree. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so you're still very big on precognition and, uh, uh, you mentioned that your very first, uh, research mm-hmm. in the program with Ingo was on psychokinesis.
1: Yeah, that. Uh, in fact, I joined the program as Mr. PK Man,
0: <laughs> not your Mr. PK. Yeah, well, I'm the author of a book called The PK Man. I'm not I the know, PK but Man. I know. I'm not the guy. <laughs> <You know.
1: laughs> but uh, <laughs> the first experiment I was ever exposed to in sci, I think yeah. I told this story before, was with John Youngerman, who was my boss at, at the Cyclotron Laboratory at the University of California, Davis. Yes. And he built a pendulum swinging back and forth and arranged it. So it took about one heartbeat to go chunk, 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 just like a heartbeat. Yeah. And on the pendulum bob, there was a mirror. And by using very clever laser interferometry, we could tell the position of where that mirror was to one quarter of a wavelength of light really mm. accurately. Uh-huh. And so what we want to know is, what what John Ehrman wanted to know, and I'm thinking, this is BS, I've never heard of this, as is stupid, what a waste of time. People are going to try to focus their attention on that gadget and try to make the pendulum stutter someplace or not follow it, I thing. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, we ended up spending a fair amount of uh, the cyclotron money um, to build the most expensive Interstate 80 truck detector in history. <laughs> it was a great <laughs> seismometer. <laughs> Which the serious part of that and what mm-hmm. I brought to the table at SRI, we have a problem. I mean, you asked me what I've learned from this. Yeah. Uh, one is this, that in our field, we have two kinds of definitions of all of our phenomena. One is negative. PK is what happens when nothing else did or should have, could have happened.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's very, 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 very expensive to assure yourself of that.
2: Yeah.
1: Secondly, the other one is uh, a, a operational definition, mm-hmm. mainly in ESP worlds. If you do this ritual, whatever it is, or comes out of that ritual, we will just label ESP. Mm-hmm. It doesn't tell you anything at all about ESP or PK. Right. Now this makes it really challenging, and, and one of the uh, what that you'll see in Volume Three when it comes out, uh, we spent about a half a billion dollars with somebody I think you know, Julian Isaacs, mm-hmm. uh, with a strain gauge experiment. And most of that money was spent on engineering details. And what we found out in the in the pilot study that this gadget in one building at SRI was sensitive to the elevator going up and down in another building at SRI. Oh my! So a strain uh, gauge. Yeah, it was. In, it, it could tell when the building was shaking slightly. I see. The other thing that I learned from that, which is really interesting and why we spent so much money on it, is that we went to uh, the our uh, electric company here, PG&E, mm. and said, "Okay, um, would you please tell us how smooth your electric current is in the wall?"
2: <laughs> and I said,
1: "Well, that, that's that, we can't tell you that." And I said, yeah. "Oh well, you know." So we came down on their heads <laughs> really heavy with classified stuff and said, "You got to tell us. We won't tell anybody."
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But now we can. It's a public document. Mm-hmm. The probability. I'm sort of remembering this. It's a. Uh, conceptually true, don't hold me to the exact numbers, that the probability of getting a pulse that lasts for one millionth of a second, a microsecond, 50 kilovolts tall, mm-hmm. the probability of that occurring in any 10-minute period is unity.
0: 50 Happen. kilovolts, that's 50,000 volts.
1: in one, But it only lasts for a millionth of a second.
0: A mil- oh, okay. So what you're saying is it's happening all the time.
1: That's happening all the time. And those things won't affect your hi-fi set. It won't affect your massively cl- accurate electric clock because it comes and goes so fast. Mm-hmm. But it radiates out from the wall. If you have a sensitive apparatus like we were building, we could see that. And, you know, well, hey, that's something that's perturbing our system. And if, if a PK, if somebody is trying PK, zaps it just at an unfortunate time when one of those pulses are, how do you know what was going on? Right. So what we had to do was move our apparatus to the center of a room to to limit that, run everything by battery, of course. And then eventually we had to uh, levitate the entire apparatus off an air table. So when the experiment was running, it wasn't sitting on anything. It was levitating in the air. Mm -hmm. And if you came by and just knocked on the door, we could tell exactly how hard you knocked and when it happened and what direction it was. And all that costs a lot of money. And eventually, uh, I told our clients, please don't ask me to do any more PK experiments. They're too expensive, Mm -hmm. only because of a definitional problem.
0: In other words, if you have an apparatus designed to detect PK, it's impossible to shield that apparatus from other sorts of uh, contamination.
1: Well, the the problem is a statistical one, and, and what you said is true. That is, you cannot prove the negative. You cannot prove the null hypothesis. Mm -hmm. I cannot say to you, Jeffrey, I've proved that PK doesn't exist. All I can say to you is, when we do these experiments, we have yet to see any evidence that cannot be explained by, quote, normal means.
0: Mm -hmm. So at this point in time, it sounds as if you're not in the least bit convinced that there is such a thing as psychokinesis.
1: Uh, can I cave out a little bit so my friends yeah. don't kill me? <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Actually you can argue with Sonali about this. We fight about it all the time.
2: Yeah.
1: Um David Eagleman, a well known uh neuroscientist, invented a, a classic term called possibility. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, we we don't know if we don't know something now, maybe it will be possible a little years from now mm-hmm. or tomorrow. Yeah. And in that regard, I I've defined myself as a possibilian for macro-PK. Why? I think uh, you and I have talked about this. The poltergeist literature, some of it is just overwhelming. Yeah. I don't know what that's going on. Maybe there'll be natural explanations for it because of the definitional problem. But I can't turn a blind eye to that. Mm-hmm. Laboratory PK, I can't. No one's done a good experiment yet. That convinces me.
0: Mm-hmm. For this reason of possible artifacts... Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Most people who do it are well-meaning. Mm-hmm. They just don't know. You don't want to have it within a, a yard of or a meter of to the wall.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: well, then ESP comes in there. ESP comes in. Well, I'll only focus when I know by ESP reasons the wall's going to shake.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: Earthquake's coming.
0: Yeah. So um, I gather then what you're you're saying is that the government program really at least. It's, during your involvement, didn't particularly focus on psychokinesis?
1: Uh, no, that's true. Um, we did some work uh, with an alpha particle uh, uh, experiment, shoot a beam of alpha particles and see if you could def- uh, deflect it. Mm-hmm. And we brought Jessica Utz, a statistician, in on that job because here's the problem. Um, The alpha particles were coming like this and banging into a detector, and and a PK person was supposed to deflect them up or down. Mm -hmm. And you can never have a pure vacuum, even though we had very, very high vacuum. Uh, So an alpha particle might bang into a residual molecule that's in there and get deflected. yeah. So we, we would know the probability at that would be as they were higher and higher away from the center. Mm-hmm. So you could pick something and say, well, the chances of an alpha particle hitting that is 10 to the minus 15. That mean it's really close to zero. Yeah. Okay, what happens if you get one particle in there? What do you determine?
0: <laughs> I know on one occasion I was with uh, Charles Musez, who was a mathematician interested in these things, and he said, suppose an event is so rare it occurs only once in the history of the universe, but that once is right now.
1: <laughs> yeah, right, there you are. Mm-hmm. I like that.
0: <laughs> yeah. You have a, a lot of healthy skepticism that you've applied to your research, and, and you've managed to do it to, in a way in which you've developed friendly conversations with other scientists who are also skeptical but open-minded.
1: Yeah. Um, I'm negotiating with, a, and he will remain nameless for a while, a well-known public skeptic who's uh, going to review Volume 2 for us. Uh-huh. So stay tuned. Okay. And actually I can say mm-hmm. um in in uh in this book I think we talked a lot about it when we were together. Yes. Uh 40% by page numbers are invited skeptics for this book. Mhm. One of those is a guy named EJ Wagenmaker. Who was one of the chief skeptics on on uh, daryl Bem's experiments?
0: Oh oh yes, I recall his criticisms. He's a statistician who takes a bayesian uh, point yeah. of
1: view, yeah, well, we got along just really fine, and mm-hmm. I said, you can't use this invitation to write a chapter to beat up on Daryl Bem. It's got to mm-hmm. be broader than that, yeah. So the end story was, and I caught him off guard because he ended up publishing 11 items that parapsychologists have to fulfill before he finds it interesting. Mm. And the way I responded to that uh, pleasant conversation, I said, well, E.J., uh, we've got 15, including your 11.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> that shot him up.
0: I, I see. Well, but did you publish that, or did you decide to rewrite it's, it?
1: It's in this. It's in this book. It is okay. Well, th- the sad part about this is, if all I knew about Psy was I see in the popular media and some of our, even some of our well-known, co- our well, um, well-intentioned um, colleagues. Yeah. Frankly, it's crap, and I would be uh, just as skeptical as anybody of these guys. They're skeptical when and only when they don't know what the real data are. Mm-hmm. If you sit down with them and don't try to convince them their world worldview is wrong, it's uh, non-local consciousness or angels dancing on the head of a pin or whatever, if you, tr- if you approach them that way, no wonder they're not going to pay any attention to you. Mm-hmm. There's a way to do that that's not terribly self-effacing, it's confident, but you have to listen to what they have to say and say, well, why are you so skeptical? And I've learned from that. <clears throat> this one skeptic I'm courting, I said, you know, I like skepticism better than I like crazy, my, my crazy buddies who are believers on everything. Mm-hmm. And that caught his attention.
0: Well, I, now that would um, put you, I suppose, a little bit outside the mainstream of parapsychologists.
1: <laughs> Uh sadly yes. Uh-huh.
0: I mean in general parapsychologists do want to hear skeptical criticisms to a point because I I think there's an emotional issue here and and sometimes parapsychologists feel that skeptics are being unfair.
1: Um I don't think so actually. Some mm-hmm. are. I mean in the other you know there's that bell-shaped curve there are some believers who are more than unfair about what they believe in.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, let me jump around a little bit because um we could pursue this topic a long time i'm sure but i i i want to come back to psychokinesis and the fact that you you made a determination at some point that this it wasn't a very uh, good way to spend research dollars uh to
1: right to because look, it was so expensive
0: yes yeah uh, on the other hand i'm under the impression and you would know better than i uh that the russian research program through their military intelligence was much more interested in psychokinesis
1: uh, yes uh, the guy that wrote the foreword for this book mm-hmm. his name is Nikolai Sham he's a general he was the, the first deputy of the KGB yeah and I know him personally uh, we've spent a long time together
0: You got to know him after the program's closed, I presume.
1: Of course, yes. And he told me in a a meeting, he said, we spent huge amounts of money at 40 different research institutes around the former Soviet Union to build psychotronic generators as weapons. Hmm. He said we couldn't make any of them work. And I said, well, Sham, had you managed to get those to work, you guys would have won the Cold War, and we had a good laugh over it. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: But the serious part is, I get yelled at by our colleagues, and you sometimes even, that I'm biased against PK, and if you're only more open to the phenomenon, it would work better. Are you kidding? We had a whole bunch of <laughs> Soviet Army people yeah. that had nothing but wanted it to work so they could win the Cold War, and it couldn't make it work.
0: Well, but you were referring to specifically to psychotronic devices.
1: Well, that's PK charging them up. Yeah, they would blast you. You know, you're you're quibbling here with words. It was it wasn't it wasn't remote viewing. Yeah. It was a device that aimed at you. You it was non-lethal weaponry mm-hmm. it aimed at you. Would get a stomach ache in the in a critical uh, negotiation. Okay, that's pretty psychokinetic. If you ask me.
0: Yeah. All, all right. Uh, fair enough. Uh, uh, because, of course, there's the earlier work of Vasilyev with uh, remote uh, hypnotic induction and so on. Yeah. And I'm under the impression that it was always an interest uh, uh, over there in Russia.
1: Yeah, that's true. Uh, they believe very strongly in that. Even now, I, I know some people that are still looking at it. Uh, but that's one of those gray areas. I don't, I mean, you want to see a PK experiment? Uh, it's mind over matter? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> so between that and hypnotizing you at a distance,
2: yeah.
1: it's a definitional problem. But what mm-hmm. these guys did in the military, that was not definitional. They mm-hmm. wanted to build a gadget that would influence you at a distance and cause you, cause you problems.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And
1: Emphasis and- on the word cause.
0: And and they claim, uh, or, or you feel confident that when he told you none of them worked, that yeah. he was that that's the truth. And yeah,
1: I believe it is. Yeah, he wrote some pretty kind words in <laughs> here about that. Uh huh.
0: Oh, okay. So, um, would you say that the uh, Russians have uh, dropped all of their programs, or they're still involved? In-
1: well, that's a question people ask about us for our program. Yeah. Um, uh the guy that ran their remote viewing program for years was a fellow is a fellow by the name of Alexei Yodovich Savin. Uh, an admiral uh, holds two PhDs, one in philosophy and one in mathematics. Mm-hmm. Very smart guy. Mm-hmm. Um at the height of his program they had 120 remote viewers. Uh and they were part of an organization uh, that reported to on our side would be called the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Very mm-hmm. high level of the military.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and uh, I met one of their remote viewers, and Joe McMonagle did also, a woman named Eleanor Klimova, who was equally as good as Joe and had a condemnation award, not unlike the one that Joe has. The um, oh, What's the award that Joe has? Um,
0: Legion of Merit, out, as I Legion recall. Legion of Merit
1: Award. Yeah. And they did a joint remote viewing together, so I had firsthand knowledge of how good this woman is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alex uh, said that, like us, they had people who were trying to put them out of business from the time when they started.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Same on our side. Mm-hmm. And so we had a bunch of very serious protectors keeping, up, keeping the wolves out of our door. Mm-hmm. And that included Dale Graff, who was really good, but primarily uh, William Cohen, when he was senator, stood yes. in the way. Other senators, uh, John Glenn, uh, George Mitchell, other senators who protected what we did. In Volume 4, you will see how they protected us. Okay. So those guys have retired. Yeah. Jack Verona, for example, is pushing 90. He's not doing this anymore. hmm So I think uh, while there are... Joe McMonagle and I spent a decade trying to get something restarted. Oh, back up. Um, Joe and I uh, were... In Moscow at a meeting with the Russian remote viewers and and the general officers and the GRU people. And on the second day, when you refer to these people, you always use their first and middle name. Like Alexei Yurovich, not General Savin, but not Mm -hmm. Alexei. Just Alexei Yurovich, this Alexei. So I said something at the table, Alexei Yurovich, what about? And he stopped me. And in the 20 years I've known this man, it's the only time he's spoken to me in English. He said, Ed? we're friends, call me Alexei. And you could see his staff mouth go like that because none mm. of them can call him Alexei. Mm. And he then went back into Russian and told me, I know you're going to write an intelligence contact report to hand to your people at, the, at Defense Intelligence Agency. I said, yes, sir, I will do that. He said, good, take all the pictures you want. And by the way, here's my organization chart. Uh, and tell them that I want a joint program with you uh, on counterterrorism. We have the same problem. Mm-hmm. I said, God, are you kidding? So I wrote about a 35 page paper like that. <clears throat> and Jeff, I literally handed that to the three star in charge of uh, Defense Intelligence Agency. And he said, Oh, this is great. It's cheap. It doesn't put people in harm's way. This is an obvious thing to do, he told me. And uh, I'm going to Moscow next week. I'll look up Savin and we'll see what we can do. Mm-hmm. Honest to God, I could practically hear him throwing it in the wastebasket by the time I closed the door behind. Oh. Me. Never happened.
2: Yeah. Well,
1: and that's why I'm convinced yeah. that uh, we should be doing it. And I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think we are.
0: And and I presume uh, the original question is: anything still going on in
1: in Russia? I don't think so. Uh huh. For the same reason, actually.
0: Well, the the reason here, I'm assuming, is actually I don't know the reason. My assumption would have been that maybe uh, relations between the U.S. and Russia are beginning to chill uh, again.
1: No, I don't think that. I mean, actually, uh, uh, between the Democrats and Republicans, we got a lot more money out of the Republicans than we did out of the Democrats. Hmm. Um, So it's somewhat apolitical. Uh, as I began to tell you, Joe and I spent a decade trying to get things restarted on yeah. counterterrorism. Mm-hmm. And what it amounts to is the working people, sort of middle-level people that who are part of this group that came back, you know, 89% of them came back for more. Those guys love this stuff. Even the folks at, at CIA love this stuff. Yeah. The problem is that they lose out at the management, both political appointee level and at the management mm-hmm. level, because they're afraid of ridicule.
2: Yeah.
0: Well, that raises a huge question, which is. Can a government organization, with all the complexities of of, uh, our politics and our bureaucracy and uh, religious issues and scientific issues, is a government agency really capable of managing a parapsychology program, given all the controversies?
1: Absolutely managed ours beautifully for all those years.
0: Mm-hmm. But as you say, it, you you had people who were protecting you because there were other people uh, unspecified sure. who wanted to kill that program.
1: That's true of every program that probably ever existed. There, are people that want I want to kill your uh, your defense your air base in your state because I want it in my state. That, that's just politics.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Yeah. So you, what you're saying is the politics was no different than for any other program.
1: I don't think so,
0: okay, well, that's important because yeah. uh, I mean, you have people for example who who want to kill everything associated with parapsychology because they believe it's demonic, including I think that's members true. of Congress. I don't Absolutely. think you get that so much with other programs uh
1: that's probably true, yeah, I don't think anybody thinks a laser is demonic, but yeah. maybe <laughs> it's yeah, possible that's
0: true. <laughs> Well, great to talk to you, Ed, and uh, now that we've established a, a really good uh, audio-video connection, uh, even before you visit Albuquerque again, I uh, hope you'll be open to further conversations.
1: Yeah. Well, what I would like to say, uh, Jeff, you always ask excellent questions. I very much appreciate what you do.
0: Well, good. So we'll we'll stay in touch and uh, do this uh, on occasion in the future.
1: I would enjoy that, Jeff. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Likewise.